You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Rebecca Modrak. Rebecca, thanks so much for being with me today. Yeah, nice to be here today. Rebecca, um, we're going to talk about your work. Uh, we're talking on February 3rd in 2022. Uh, I, I want to talk about the the talk you gave um, at Wyden and Kennedy, if I'm saying their name right, an advertising firm in November of 2021, because of how it relates to your to your art, which of course is at an intersection of, of a number of things: uh, activism and, and, and critical design and and resistance. So, um, so can you tell me a little bit about that that talk at ethics uh, on ethics and advertising uh, that you did that you presented to an advertising agency? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it was fairly unusual in some ways. Um, so I teach at the Stamp School of Art and Design at the University of Michigan. And for the last few years, a colleague in the Ross School of Business, Marcus Collins, has been inviting me to come in to be the final speaker each semester for his MFA course on, um, on uh, advertising. And uh, my talk to his students is about ethics and advertising, and uh, this past year, uh, Marcus is a consultant um, with this advertising firm, and they invited me to come and give a talk. So in some ways, it's an unusual audience for an artist, especially one like myself who's very critical of brand messaging. And on the other hand, I've been giving a sort of related talk to these um, MB- I'm sorry, MBA, not MFA, MBA students um, over the past two years. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I never know what to expect when I give, even when I give a talk to the MBA students. Um, the first time I did it, you know, I felt like I was preparing for like a court case um, that I was trying had to persuade them all the reasons why there are all these um, ethical problems with advertising as related to representation. So, for example, how women are represented, uh, how African Americans have been represented over the years, the power inequities between, um, you know, who who is rec- representing whom, and that's usually people in power representing marginalized communities. Um, and so, the talk that I give. Um, talks about, you know, Edward S. Curtis's photographs of Native Americans as kind of like an early example of a advertising campaign to convince Americans that Native Americans were sort of more um, part of wildlife um, than they were human, um, that they were could be seen as, you know, this large group rather than individuals. And so it, when they disappeared, and that's what Curtis named his book, um, The Disappearing Race, when they disappeared, you know, it was just a natural part of the environment. And that was, that was funded by the government, and it was part of a kind of plan to educate Americans on how to perceive Native Americans. So I start there and then kind of wind my way um, through into contemporary advertising. And then that's the first half of the talk. And then the second half of the talk, I introduce my work to them, um, and in particular, Remade Company, which is a fake company. Um, it looks it it takes the form of um, or mimics an existing company, Best Made Company, which sells artisanal axes for three hundred and fifty dollars. Um, but my company sells artisanal plungers, and I also introduce them to Rethink Shinola, another online work of mine um, that's critical of the company Shinola. And and that's in the last examples you talk of, that's, um, you know, of course, both, both critical and also humorous and also kind of 
specific and, and activist. It's about luxury good markets. We're talking about a certain, um, if I understand correctly, kind of financial bracket of advertising. Yeah, I, it's true. Both both of these companies, um, Best Made and Shinola, target more affluent consumers, um, and and that's you know like much part of my critique. Um, so, for example, Best Made, you know, the, an axe is a tool of manual labor, and essentially they're selling these axes to men who, you know, most of them, the majority of them, hang them up over their fireplace um, as a symbol of manual labor to connect themselves with ideas of work. Um, a few of them will take them, you know, out back and hit a few pieces of wood. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it does appropriate the idea of manual labor for men who, you know, are doing like white-collar desk jobs, um, who don't really have a sense of what manual labor involves. Um, so that's a real problem. One of the, one of the many problems of Best Mates um, advertising. And then Shinola um, also, Shinola is a, um, created by Texas entrepreneurs who saw all of the attention that Detroit was getting um, in the early 2000s, um, and they did a survey asking people, would you pay five times as much for a pen if it was made in China, New York, or Detroit? And people said Detroit. So they realized they could profit off of the image of Detroit, which was an image of you know, resilience. Um, we, Detroit was just about to um, be declared a bankrupt city, um, Detroit's 83% African American. Um, it's you know a city with a lot of poverty, um, and that's the sort of image that that bedrock manufacturing wanted to capitalize on. And so they set up this so-called watch factory in Detroit, um, and they use they use images of their African American workers, and these are the assembly workers. A watch factory, not not a pen factory. This is right? Yeah, they just I mean. use the pen as an example for that survey, but then the actual products that they sell are watches, and they try to make this connection between the watch as a having a motor, and this kind of nostalgia for Detroit as the motor city or you know automotive industry. So this, this, you know, that, that's fascinating, and, and, and this works. To circle back to the, the presentation you did um, on ethics and advertising, it's while it's while it's your art and an activist and, and all of these things, it's also um, kind of like a watchdog type thing, isn't it? And shouldn't or does? I mean, while while that context was odd, it almost seems like all of these companies should hire you to say. Uh, kind of, well, what have we done wrong? Like, like yeah. how can we fix this? And and, and is that happening? Because it, I would, part of me is thinking that the reason, you know, you're embraced at that lecture um, at, at that advertising agency is because of, you know, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, uh, you know, white men are, are trying to understand and the ones that are in business must understand, right? So, or, or try. So, um you know, is is that part of what's happening here? Because this is art and activism turning into watchdog, almost fixer of of these problems. Yeah, that's such a great observation. I mean, I I you know feel that way about it. I, um, a friend of mine likes to tell me this story about um, NASA after the Challenger exploded. Um, they you know, the one, one of the problems they've been having is that they were so happy with themselves all the time. There was this, you know, bubble, you know, of people working there who um, weren't really questioning what they were doing anymore. And so after the Challenger, they brought in 
somebody, and that person's only job was to point out problems. Um, they were independent, you know, they weren't, like, overseen by um, this company. And, I mean, we know, like, this can go wrong. Um, I mean, we here at the University of Michigan have, like, independent groups come in all the time, and, you know, they're beholden to the administration, and they never really point out anything wrong and no changes are made. But in NASA, it seems like it worked well. Um, this person came in, and they went into meetings, and, um, you know, their only role was to say, like, okay, here's a problem, here's a problem, what about this? And to be this sort of like Socratic figure asking questions. And, um, you know, for me, I, I don't think I ever intentionally meant that, but I, my background is in photographic representation and photographic imagery and the history of photography. And, you know, I think about these things a lot. And um, I also tend to be sort of like an outside figure myself, like pretty independent um, within groups. And, I kind of naturally take this role. Um, I mean, Shinola was an interesting, we think Shinola was an interesting piece because in some ways, like, I felt like I was often entering the field of journalism, of, like, reportage, um, and at other times I was, you know, commenting on what I was seeing or, or like, kind of poking fun at it a little bit um, or trying to use their words, um, you know, to kind of incriminate themselves. Um, and so I use some creative strategies, but, yeah, I, th- I think it often kind of, you know, shifts into journalism a little bit and then back again into art. Well, a number of categories you're kind of straddling or at the intersection of to, to talk a little bit about, you're, you're saying you're coming from the history of photography uh, and, um, and you said something else there. H- how does that influence that? Because um, the history of photography is, is fascinating uh, yeah. to me personally. I just read that Vivian Meyer biography, uh, which was amazing, but also, um, you know, that relates to advertising and how images are presented and, and, and how we see the world. So, so how does, what exactly were you researching and is your background in photography and history and how does that influence um, what we're talking about now? Yeah, um, what photography is all about power. Um, you know, who has control of the camera, um, but also even who has control of, you know, how we understand what it means to be photographic. So, like, is a photographic image a scientific document, or is it a complete fabrication? And um, I wrote a book called Reframing Photography. Uh, it was published in 2011, and, you know, one of the, one of the essays in it that really, like, was um, helpful for me in understanding about photography was about representation, which, you know, led into all of these sort of questions about, um, you know, who controls photographic images. And I looked at, you know, again, how Native American, contemporary Native American um, groups are imaged in their relationship with the camera. I mean, I, I had sort of been, a, when I was a student, I'd often heard, um, you know, Native American groups don't want to be photographed because they don't want their spirits stolen. And I interviewed, when I was writing the book, I interviewed um, some some. Uh, tribe members up in northern Michigan, and I was asking them about this, and they were saying it's not so much, you know, this kind of like spiritual question of our, you know, of our spirit being stolen, as it is an understanding, like a real understanding of what has been taken from us, um, both in terms of land rights and power, and that photography is wrapped up in that. And so, um, you know, one of the things in this essay that I propose is that not photographing is like a really significant photographic act um, you know, as well as photographing. Sometimes, like, to do nothing is really much more important than to do something. And, um, 
Do yeah, you mean do you mean like for example a journalist putting down their camera to help the starving child kind of thing or um, what would what would that mean? Because that's very interesting and kind of provocative sometimes not to take the photograph. Right, exactly. Like giving up your own power, ceding your power. Um, you know, like handing the camera over to somebody else, not photographing, having a conversation with somebody instead of taking a picture. Um, I mean, it's surprising to me still, like even in, you know, 2021, 22, I still see these kind of photographic assignments where people send their students out to photograph like the homeless because they're more colorful and like, you know, edgier um, kind of subject matter. And it's just kind of remarkable to me that, you know, they're not having conversations about, you know, what it means to image somebody else um, and make decisions about some, how somebody is imaged. And I, when, when Rethink Shinola came out, to kind of get back to something else you were, you were referring to, when Rethink Shinola came out in 2017, um, I don't think people were ready to have that conversation about um, what it meant for bedrock manufacturing to co-opt, you know, the city of Detroit as part of their branding and their messaging. Um, but then after the Black Lives Matter protests in, you know, the last few years, um, when that work kind of went out again because it was reposted, um, there was a, like a really like big response to it at that time from people who had kind of shied away from it before. And I think that's why like in this moment I can present to, um, you know, the advertising company or the MBA students and they understand it now rather than like pushing back or just not being ready to talk about it. It's really interesting. Um, and, 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 yeah, photography poses uh, – yeah, all, all kinds of questions and and problems. So, so where to from here? Uh, another exhibition, or will you be working with more agencies, or you know, uh, you continue to teach and write and, and 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 everything that you're doing? But is there um, a project that you're continuing, or or something else that's next? Yeah. Um, well, so all of my work is online. So remade, com- you know, is an online company at remadeco.org. And Rethink Shinola is RethinkShinola.com. Um, um, and, uh, you know, they all sort of take place in sites that people can access them where they, you know, they're coming upon, they're shopping or they're, you know, like interested in buying a watch or they're, um, you know, looking up sort of like other products. I mean, they're intentionally meant to be part of this kind of consumer landscape. And that um, tends to be how I how I start making works also. I, you know, I read about the axes in the New York Times or, um, you know, I'm browsing in like a bookstore and I see a um, Shinola Detroit notebook in like, you know, New York City in a bookstore and it's the first time I've seen the word Detroit in New York ever and it's here, you know, like positioned as part of a Shinola product. Um, and so, you know, I just come upon things in my life and, um, they irk me, and I respond to them. And one of those things right now is here at the University of Michigan. We're having um, a lot of problems um, that are not new but have been happening over decades around sexual assault. And um, there's been a, at least eight cases in which uh, predators, sexual predators on campus who are either administrators or faculty have been allowed to um, prey on people over the, you know, the biggest case that just came out was Dr. Anderson, who was a, the athletic doctor who um, abused over a thousand student athletes um, over 30 years. 
And um, so one of the series that I'm doing is a series of brochures that seem to come from the University of Michigan from an office that I set up called um, UM Careers for Sex Offenders. And the brochures describe why the UM campus is currently a safe place for sexual predators to practice. And and that's I'm I'm, I'm glad we're talking about that because that's that's uh, a really tough issue and and a really important one and maybe ties back in in a kind of um, oblique way to the to the idea of you were saying universities. I mean, since we're talking about kind of photographic and you know image literacy in in a way, the idea of universities or photo classes saying you know go out and photograph homeless people, that in itself is is predatory. Right, yeah. that's, that's invading someone's space. That's yeah. you know also taking their image, um, but it's it's really predatory um, in, in in a sense, isn't it? Or, or, or no? Oh yeah, completely. That's a great connection to make. I mean, the fact that we, you know, teach students in some ways to see themselves as people in positions of power, you know, who have the authority to um, to you know write about people in a certain way, to engage with them in a certain way. Um, you know, to photograph them. Uh, you know, one of the places that I first, besides the notebook in New York in the in the bookstore, one of the places that I first came upon Shinola was um, I went to a lecture here at the Center for Entrepreneurship, and the then um, president of Shinola was speaking, and he, you know, when I sat down in the auditorium, there was this image up on the screen of a, um, I don't know, I guess I'd say 10-year-old African-American girl you know, in kind of like pigtails. Um, it was a black and white image. It could have been taken in the, you know, early 1950s, um, but I know it was a Bruce Weber photograph from, you know, from the last few years. And then across her chest, there's the word Shinola, as though she's been branded. And I, I sat there in the audience for 15 minutes um, with this image up, just like, uh, you know, really upset about this. And I was sort of watching the students and, you know, the instructors um, coming in and trying to gauge whether anybody else was concerned. And then um, as, the, as the president of the company started to speak, you know, he also, he described Detroit as crazy. Um, I mean, he describes it that way in, in the sense that he wants to build this image of Detroit as this kind of like rough place, you know, full of drugs and poverty. And here's Shinola coming in like white knights and they're going to save the city. And aren't they brave to do this? And, you know, aren't they sort of heroic? Um, well, he finishes this talk that's really problematic. And, you know, that was it. Everybody claps. Everybody gets up and leaves. There's no Q&A. And I was, you know, kind of stunned that that's what we're teaching students here at the University of Michigan. Um, and so I kept at requesting. I, they were supposed to put this lecture online, and I wanted to share it with people. And... Um, and they wouldn't put it up for some reason. So I, they would allow me to go in and to watch the talk recorded in their offices, at first by myself, and then at like the third time I watched it there, they started having someone like a chaperone sit with me um, and watch it with me. And I, I, I um, made a transcript of the talk, like a verbatim, and also like every slide. And then I recreated the talk with a hired an actor to recreate it in the same lecture hall it had been made. And that's one of the things that's on Rethink Shinola, which was really a way to, you know, um, make public this talk that had been given at the University of Michigan so that other people could witness it. Rebecca, thanks for talking about this. And, and um, 
and discussing this work, I, uh, there'll be links here for you know, listeners to, of course, investigate your work more. Um, I want to ask you one more question, which is off topic, but what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm reading two things. So one of them is sort of more for work-related. Um, I mean, my work interest, which is David Graeber's Bullshit Jobs, and um, which is really, like, remarkable. And then the other one is I'm a... Um, I'm a big mystery fan, and so I'm reading Three Witnesses by Rick Stout, which is a, a Nero Wolf, um, Archie Goodwin mystery. Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time and uh, especially your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.